The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 103, a Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, thank goodness for that, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you, his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you, his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Okay, before we go into our verses today, I want to take you back to what it says about our sins. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, whenever I read that, I like to remind people that that means forever and ever. If he had said from north to south, it would not mean forever. Because when you get in an airplane and you fly to the north, what happens? You get over the equator and your compass turns around and goes to the south. There is a north. And when you get to the south and you fly over the south, it turns around and goes the other way because there is a south. But if you get in an airplane and you start heading east, you will go forever and ever and ever and your compass will not change. There is no east and there is no west. And somehow the psalmist knew this 3,500 years ago or 2,800 years ago or whatever. Okay, so when it says that he has removed your sins as far as the east is from the west, you can know that your sins are gone forever. 
And not only that, you are no longer being imputed sin in Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. If anybody ever tells you that you can lose your salvation, say you're wrong, and then walk away. <laughs> okay, we are in Joshua 24. This is the last chapter of Joshua. It is verses 1 through 5. This will be a three-part sermon, and then we'll have one sermon to end the um, chapter. So Joshua 24, 1 through 5. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt, according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. One of the folks in the online church, his name is Trent. He used to play in a rather famous Christian band that won a Grammy Award and other nominations. He sent me a note tying music theory into some of the regions of Asia that are mentioned in the Bible. He noted that the Catholic Church played a big part in naming the seven scales that we all listen to today. They are based on the names of various Roman regions where the sounds originated. They are the Ionian, Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian, Aeolian, and Locrian. The Lydian, for example, is from the district of Lydia in a Roman province in Asia. It is in this district that Thyatira is located. This is where Lydia, who is noted in Acts 16, was from. Thyatira is also one of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. Looking at the names of the seven scales, you can also see that the Phrygian comes from Phrygia, which is also mentioned in Acts. Trent wanted to explain these things to me a little more clearly, and so he did a short video on YouTube playing variations in the styles and saying things like, you can hear the difference in this, da-da-da, and this, da-da-da. Actually, I couldn't hear the difference at all. I'm as tone deaf as a dead fish. I found that out when a music teacher had to let me go from the Sarasota Boys Choir after testing me. Mom was all excited my son is going to be under Julie Rohr at the Julie Rohr Academy in the Sarasota Boys Choir and he's going to go to Vienna. Well, that didn't last. She asked, is this higher or lower? Is this sharper or flatter? I had no idea. Hence, off the choir I went. The funny thing is, I can hear that there are differences but I have no comprehension of what they are. To get this, imagine someone who is colorblind. He knows that there is a difference in the colors he is being shown, but he has no idea what it is. He sees the shades, but it means nothing to him. That is me with music. Our text verse comes from Acts chapter seven. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. They make special glasses now that can help colorblind people see colors. Go to YouTube and type in a search for colorblind person sees color for the first time. 
the reaction you will see will be like me when I can distinguish sound differences for the first time. These people literally break down and weep. Now imagine what it will be like for all of us when we see, for the very first time in our lives, life without the taint of sin. Imagine that. I cannot wait. Trent's video made me think about this, and it comes to my mind often. The music he plays is so natural to him that he gets all excited as he says things like, okay, now listen to this, and yet I cannot perceive it at all. Imagine eating Thai peppers and then ice cream and not being able to tell the difference. Trent gets it. I don't. The point of this is that we have been going through Joshua. There are things that make seemingly no sense at all. You read the words and keep going while maybe thinking, I have no idea what this is saying to me. And yet, there is a symphony playing in the background. There's so much going on and yet we miss the nuances. This is the great thing about going through the Bible verse by verse and even word by word. We are forcing ourselves to hear the differences in the sounds that are being played. We are tasting that the Lord is so very good in so many new ways, and we are seeing innumerable colors emanating from what seems to be otherwise colorless passage recorded with black letters on white pages. Stephen mentioned the 400 years of bondage and oppression that Israel faced. He cited this from the Genesis 15 narrative. In Galatians, Paul says that the law came 430 years after the promise to Abraham. How can that be if Israel was in Egypt for 400 years? Spoiler alert, they weren't. To understand what is being conveyed by the Lord to Israel, we will need to review many such things as we go through Joshua 24. We'll get through the first five verses today, the Lord willing. As for the seven scales of music, Trent almost seemed let down that there is no Lycanian mode. The province of Lacaonia is known as Wolfland. It is where our term lichen or werewolf is derived from. We have no werewolf scale for music. Well, except for howls and screams from people who have to listen to me while I sing. I can tell you that this is true by pointing at one person who is one of the first people in the church every week. And every week he has to instruct me on singing. His instruction is no singing. That's true. Really wonderful things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is before the God. It's verses one and two. Verse 1, then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And gathered Joshua, all tribes Israel, Shechem word. Rather than Shiloh, where the tabernacle was located, Joshua has them gathered together at Shechem for a particular purpose. Shechem is identical to Shechem, meaning shoulder. Thus, it literally means shoulder. However, that comes from shakam, signifying to incline, as inclining the shoulder to a burden. 
Hence, it is normally translated as to rise or to start early. Abarim therefore describes Shechem as having a sense of responsibility. Actually, just responsibility, but it's having a sense of it. Shechem is where the Lord first spoke to Avram after coming into the land of promise and uttered his promise to him. Genesis 12, then the Lord appeared to Avram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. It is where Jacob was said to have finally and safely returned from his journey to Padan Aram. There is Genesis 33. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he had come from Padan Aram. And he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Yisrael. It is the location where Jacob stayed at the time his daughter Dinah was defiled. Because of that, Simeon and Levi killed all the males of the city. In this same location, it said this in Genesis 35. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. It is the location where Joseph's bones were taken and buried. That was first commanded to Israel in Genesis 50. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. The fulfillment of that will be seen towards the end of Joshua 24. Also, Shechem is the area where Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are located. Thus, it is the location where Moses commanded these words to be carried out from Deuteronomy 27. Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. The altar was built and the ceremony was conducted as recorded in Joshua chapter 8. In fact, as nutty as this may sound, the events in Joshua 24 may coincide with the building of the altar in Joshua 8. In Joshua 8, it said, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. The word translated as now 
in that verse is az, a demonstrative adverb that generally signifies at that time or thereupon. It can refer to a point in the future when a prophecy or statement of fact is given, such as at that time the Lord will do such and such. Further, the word translated as built is yivne. It is an imperfect verb that carries the sense of ongoing or even the future. The same form is used in 2 Samuel 7 saying this, he shall build a house for my name. It's something that will happen in the future and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Though it appears while reading Joshua that the events are chronological, including in Joshua 8, as I explained at that time all the way back in Joshua 8, that that was highly unlikely. As has been seen again and again, the individual passages of Joshua are categorical and they are expressive. They are not necessarily chronological. If this is the same event as in Joshua 8, then the gathering includes the entire congregation of Israel, including all the women and children. It would also mean that the last verses of Joshua 24 concerning the death of Joshua are again categorical, not chronological. If this is a correct analysis, then I would take the events of Joshua 8 verses 30 through 35 as occurring between Joshua 24, 24 and 24, 25. This is speculation and it is a logical way to resolve the chronology of the events in Joshua. Regardless, each of these notable events of Israel's history has a bearing on what is stated in Joshua 24. As for this gathering, as noted, it could be a regular gathering on one of the appointed feast days, or it could be that it is a special gathering. Either way, it is an all-inclusive gathering of the tribes, and yet, if it is not in conjunction with the events of Joshua 8, it may be that the next words define what all the tribes of Israel mean. Like in Joshua 23 verse 2, rather than all the people of the nation, it may mean all the representatives of the tribes. But I would go with the analysis that Joshua 8 coincides with this. That's just my call. You don't have to agree with it. Verse 1 continues, and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers. Very similar to what we saw in the last chapter, rather than their the words are in the singular, referring to Israel as a single man. And called to elders Israel, and to his heads, and to his judges, and to his officers. The four categories include the elders, who are the 70 leaders, eventually known as the Sanhedrin. The heads are the chief men of the families. The judges are those who interpreted the law and made decisions based on their analyses. The word used to describe the officers, shoter, comes from a word indicating to write. Thus, they would be scribes or official superintendents or magistrates. With their calling, it next says, verse 1 continues, and they presented themselves before God. Of the 38 translations I checked for this verse, not a single one accurately includes the article before the word God. Rather, it says, and station themselves before the God. As always, the definite article is expressive. 
It is used when referring to the one true God in relation to man. But more especially, it is in relation to those who are in a right relationship with him, or it is used to contrast those who are not in a right relationship with him. Israel is the nation of the Lord. They have presented themselves before the true God to be instructed by Joshua. This is the same thought that is used in Job 1 and 2 using the same word. It says, and it was the day and came the sons of the God to station themselves upon Jehovah. The meaning is that those who worship the Lord came to offer upon his altar, as was noted in the previous verse of Job. The view that the sons of God in Job 1 and Job 2 refers to angels is incorrect. It is referring to those humans who worship the Lord, having retained the knowledge of him in the form that was handed down from Noah to ensure the Lord would continue to be revealed properly among the people of the world, Israel was selected as a nation. A covenant was made with them, and his tabernacle and later his temple was placed among them. As such, the leaders of this nation had been called together for this purpose. Understanding this, the narrative continues, explaining who the God is. However, the words are those of the Lord having been conveyed to Joshua. As this is so, the text is claiming divine inspiration in what is next said. Verse 2, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Ko amar Yehovah Elohei Yisrael. Thus says Yehovah God of Israel. The words explain the meaning of Ha Elohim, the God just mentioned. Yehovah is the God of Israel. As noted above, he is God, the God to those who stand in a proper relationship with him. The article is always there for a reason. Why people don't translate it, I have no idea. This past Monday, I had a couple of articles in front of a couple of words, and what did we spend? 20 minutes? Probably 20 minutes talking about two these in a text. It's that important that we understand what is going on in Scripture, and you can't do it if Bibles do not translate for you what you need to know. However, the appropriate worship of him was naturally dying out once again. People are prone to quickly apostatize from a proper understanding of who he is. And so to maintain a proper revelation of who he is, he called Israel as his people. Does everybody understand what I just said? Job is worshiping the Lord, he and the people with him. They're there sacrificing to the Lord. But eventually our thoughts about God get skewed. They get misinterpreted. And eventually there will be no proper relationship with the Lord at all. So what did God do? He called Israel as his people to maintain the proper worship of the Lord until the coming of the Messiah. That is clearly elucidated in the coming words, beginning with, verse 2 continues, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. The word including, which you see is italicized, is not in the text. Be'ever ha'nachar yashvu avotechem me'olam Terach avi Avraham va'avi Nahor. Inside the river dwelt your fathers from antiquity. Terah, father Abraham and father Nahor. The meaning of Terah is a best guess, but it appears to come from two words. Tur, which gives a sense of a broad sweeping motion, and Ravach, 
which is to be wide, spacious, unconfined, and so on. Thus, it could signify wanderer, like a person that is turning around in big, wide spaces. Avraham is defined by most as father of a multitude or father of many nations. Nahor comes from Nahar, a snorting. Thus, it means snorting or breathing hard. The meaning of this clause is that before Israel was called, even before Avraham was called, Terah and Avraham and Nahor dwelt on the other side of the Euphrates River. Because the word including is not in the text, the plural is surely inclusive of Abraham. Terah, along with Abraham and Nahor, lived in that area, and there is no reason to assume that the next words do not apply to them. Verse 2 continues, And they served other gods. Vayavdu Elohim acharim, And served gods other. Although it is unpalatable to tie Avraham in with serving other gods, hence the probable reason for the inclusion of the word including in the previous clause, this is what the text says. In Jewish tradition, it is asserted that while living in Ur, Avraham was persecuted for his disgust of idolatry. Because of this, he was called from there by God. As usual, such traditions are not to be considered as reliable. They're not in scripture. It doesn't hint at that. Ignore them. Rather, this is what explains the most curious words of Abraham that are universally mistranslated. From Genesis 20, verse 13. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house. I'm sorry, the verb there is plural. Therefore, the translation God is incorrect. It reads, Vehi ka'asher hitu oti Elohim mi bet avi. And it was, according to which caused to wander me, gods, plural, from house my father. In other words, he isn't saying that it was the Lord God who caused him to wander from his father's house. Rather, the false gods that were served in Ur is what caused him to wander from his father's house. That is seen in Genesis 11. And Terah took his son, Avram, and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son, Avram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Whether it was Terah or Abraham that realized the idolatry of Ur was inappropriate, or whether the Lord specifically revealed himself to one of them, the decision was made to leave there. Based on the next words, it seems likely that it was Avraham and that it was because of the purposeful intervention of the Lord. Matthew Poole agrees with this. He says, Both Avraham and Nahor were no less idolaters than the rest of mankind. This is said to prevent their, meaning Israel's, vain boasting in their worthy ancestors and to assure them that whatsoever good was in or had been done by their progenitors was wholly born of God's free grace and not for their own merit or righteousness, as the Jews were very apt to concede. Okay, that's why I said throw those commentaries by the Jews out. They're almost universally wrong because they don't want to have a stain on their genealogy and their history, they make this stuff up. It's not worth it. If it's not in scripture, toss it out. This is likely what Matthew Poole said. Whatever way the original calling came about, and whoever it was to, God was the one who acted first, superintending over the events. 
with this contemplated, the word of the Lord through Joshua continues. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Just imagine what Israel saw as they crucified Jesus. There was the sinless Lamb of God, and yet cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Should we weep and mourn, or should we stand and applaud over the things God has done for you and me? Because of what he has done for us, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Wonderful news is to be learned therefrom, that we might the promise receive the gift of the Spirit through faith in those who believe. Our second thought today is in his midst. It's verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, Then I took your father, Avraham, from the other side of the river. And took your father, Avraham, from side the river. The obvious meaning is from the other side of the Euphrates, in the land of Ur. The gods caused Abraham to wander, but the Lord took him and purposefully led him. The Lord God, the true God, called Abraham away from the false gods in order to establish him. Abraham is the material cause. Abraham's faith is the formal cause. Getting Abraham away from the false gods was the efficient cause. And a relationship with the true God for him and his generations was to be the final cause. The words of this clause begin a list of events from Israel's history. Each is a mark of grace in itself. But there are five which confirms the meaning of the number, grace. Cambridge mistakenly lists them as the following. One, the call of Abraham. Two, the deliverance from Egypt. Three, the defeat of the Amorites on the east of the Jordan and the frustration of the machinations of Balaam. Four, the passage of the Jordan and capture of Jericho. Five, the victories over all the nations of Canaan. These need to be amended to fit what the narrative reflects. One, the move and call of Abraham and the establishment of the line of promise. Two, the move to and deliverance from Egypt. Three, the move into the land of the Amorites on the east of the Jordan and their defeat. Four, the move through the Jordan and the subduing of the land of Canaan. And five, the planting of Israel in the land of promise. The great point of what is to be noted in verses 3 through 13, pay attention, is the one that is left unstated. There is nothing about the giving of the law in the Lord's words. Think of that. Israel clings to the law of Moses, and yet Joshua does not even mention it. The point is that Abraham was an idolater in the land of idolatry, these false gods were leading the people astray. Eventually, there would be no understanding left of the true God, Jehovah. Therefore, the Lord acted to bring about proper worship of himself and to restore the world to himself through that proper worship. As this is so, it becomes obvious that the law is not, as so many unfortunate Christians and the Jews believe, it is not the final step in the process. Rather, it is an instructive tool leading to the final step. The Jews think that they are the point of all of the steps taken along the redemptive path. From there, the covenant made with them at Sinai sealed that. As such, they see themselves as the ultimate focus of favor from the Lord and the law as the final mark 
of that favor. Can anybody disagree with that? Even to this day, that's what they think. But if Abraham's call was one of grace, which Paul talks about in Galatians, and if the events in his life led to a declaration of righteousness apart from the law, then the law cannot annul what happened before its inception. Paul explains this in detail in Galatians 3. I'm going to read it to you. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham before, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Verse 10, for as many are as of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which were written in the book of the law to do them. I'll stop right there. That was the instruction from the Lord in Deuteronomy that was supposed to be read to the people at Mount Ebal and at Mount Gerizim where Joshua is right now. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things of the law. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, the law of Moses, the law which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The call of Abraham cannot be separated from the life of Abraham. Though the declaration of righteousness and the promise are not mentioned by the Lord through Joshua at this time, they explain the reason for the call. The Lord is working through a plan where the entire world will once again worship him in the proper manner. Everybody understand that? The law is leading to Jesus. Jesus is the end of all of it. That is the proper worship of God. Woman, I tell you that not on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will people worship, but in spirit and in truth. I know I misquoted that, but Jesus is the point of everything that's happening right here. Everything. The Lord is working through a plan where the entire world will once again worship him in the proper manner. Understanding this, the words of the Lord through Joshua next say, verse 3 continues, led him throughout all the land of Canaan. And walked him in all land Canaan. 
That is seen in the words of Genesis 13. And the Lord said to Avram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. The Lord directed Abraham to walk throughout the land, and so he did as instructed. This great survey of the land was to give him confidence in the word of the Lord. Even if he was a sojourner, the land would be established as the possession of his seed. This would be for the continued revelation of the Lord concerning himself. To bring this about, it next says, verse 3 continues, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. The written Hebrew text says, Va'erev et zaro, va'eten lo et yitzhak, and multiplied his seed and gave to him Isaac. These words are included under the major category of the call of Abraham and the establishment of the line of promise. Though the multiplication of Abraham's seed is mentioned, which would have included sons through Hagar and Keturah, those children are excluded from the text because they are irrelevant to what is being presented. Isaac means laughter. He is the son of promise and the continuation of the line of promise. Next, verse 4, to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. Va'eten le Yitzhak et Yaakov ve'et Esav, and gave to Isaac Jacob and Esau. Isaac was a son of promise, but the words here clearly indicate that both Jacob and Esau were given to Isaac. Thus, even if a son is not of promise, he is still a granting from the Lord. That is reflected in the words of Psalm 127, where it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It is a rather sobering thought when we consider how children in the womb are treated today. Jacob literally means heel catcher, but that has several independent meanings such as supplanter, one who trips up, one closely following, and so on. Each is tied into the thought of grabbing the heel of another. Esau comes from Asaw, to do or to make. He was born hairy and thus looked like a fully formed man. His name is Made. As for these two, verse 4 continues, to Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. It's maddening how the New King James Version diverts incorrectly from the King James Version. The King James Version, despite not being a great translation, got these words exactly. And then the New King James Version completely messes them up. At times, it is more like the UKJ version, which is the unimproved King James Version. It says, Va'eten le Esav har Seir la reshet oto, and gave to Esau Mount Seir to possess it. It seems like a superfluous statement to make when Esau, like Ishmael, is not a son of promise. However, the promise of the land of Canaan was given to Jacob. Therefore, it would provide a reason for how the land would remain the possession of Jacob and his offspring. That was explained in Genesis 36, just as was the removal of Ishmael in Genesis 21 and the other sons of Abraham in Genesis 25. But nothing of those things is mentioned here. Thus, we can assume that we should look for typology. Har Seir means Mount Seir or Mount Hairy because it looks like a hairy mount. It's got little bushes all over it. 
low bushes until it looks like a hairy mountain. So it's called Mount Sierre, and that means hairy mount. As has been seen many times, a mountain, a har, is a lot of something gathered. It is synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. Hair signifies an awareness of something, most especially an awareness of sin. Next it says, verse 4 continues, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. These words begin the second section of the Lord's discourse, the move to and deliverance from Egypt. And Jacob and his sons went down Egypt. Egypt means double distress. The movement of Jacob and his family to Egypt was something spoken to Abraham many years earlier, including the reason that it would come about from Genesis 15. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Avram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell on him. Then he said to Avram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Remember that because that was from our text verse. Stephen said 400 years, okay? And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, remember that, fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 400 years, fourth generation, how does it all fit? The movement of Jacob and his family to Egypt occurred in the year 2299 Anno Mundi, meaning from the creation of the world. It was 215 years after the initial promise of the land that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That occurred in the year 2084 Anno Mundi. From that point, it would be another 215 years before Israel would be brought out of Egypt in the year 2514 Anno Mundi. If you don't know this and you want a copy of it, ever since we started Genesis 1-1, I have kept every date that is possible to be determined on a file. And so if you need that for the timeline of the world, I can email you that. And that way you know that what I'm saying is correct. You just look at the reference in the Bible, there it says it. One might then say that the Lord's words to Abraham in Genesis 15 aren't true. Remember he said 400 years? If they would be afflicted 400 years, and yet they were only in Egypt for 215 years, then there is an error. But this is incorrect. It says, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Isaac was born in the year 2109 Anno Mundi. He would have been weaned between two and four years old. That would be between 2011 and 2013 Anno Mundi. As they departed from Egypt in 2514 Anno Mundi, and as Ishmael began afflicting Abraham's descendants at the weaning of Isaac in a land that was not theirs, it is 400 years from Ishmael's afflicting Isaac to the exodus from Egypt. It's very clear when you look at the text. Also, one might argue that the words the fourth generation are wrong because the people were in Egypt for more than four generations. Again, this would be incorrect. Only the line of Levi out of all of those who went to Egypt has the specific years of their lives recorded. 
only Levi. You won't find any other years of people being recorded anywhere except Levi. This is based on the naming of Jochebed, the daughter of Levi in Exodus and in Numbers. Those two mentions are from Exodus 6. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137 years. 137 years. And from Numbers 26, the name of Amram's wife was Jochebed. Here it is. The daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And to Amram, she bore Aaron and Moses and their sister Miriam. Jochebed is noted as Amram's wife and also his father's sister. But she is also called the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. In Genesis 6, verse 16, it said that Levi lived to the age of 137. The only other son of Jacob whose age at death was recorded was Joseph, because it was necessary to know for the timing of the Genesis narrative. After Levi, of his three sons, only the age of Kohath is given at his death, 133 years of age. And then, for all the sons of Kohath, only the age of Amram is given at his death, 137. As the Israelites dwelt in Egypt for 215 years, these ages were recorded to show the reliability of God's promise to Abraham, and thus the reliability of the word of God itself. This is evidenced by the words, and to Amram, she, meaning Jochebed, bore Aaron and Moses and their sister Miriam. Jochebed is Levi's natural daughter, and Kohath is Levi's natural son. Amram was Levi's grandson who married his aunt, Levi's daughter. It was to that union that Aaron, Moses, and Miriam, Levi's great-grandchildren, were born. The specific record of this line was given to establish a direct line from Abraham to Moses and Aaron, through Isaac and Jacob. That is clearly evident when compared with the other sets of genealogies already given in the Bible. But more, the special record of the years of these people's lives, along with the special note of Jochebed as being both the daughter of Levi and the sister of Kohath, is given to show that the Lord's words are both true and fulfilled. Jacob went to Egypt with his family, which included Levi. Levi went down to Egypt and Levi's three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. In Egypt, Kohath had a son named Amram, and Amram had a son named Moses. Thus, Moses is the fourth generation from Jacob who went to Egypt. Jacob, Levi, Kohath, Amram, Moses. And the sons of Aaron and Moses are the fourth generation from Kohath, Levi's son, who also went to Egypt. As it is this generation that entered Canaan, the prophecy concerning the fourth generation was exactingly fulfilled. As complicated as that was, try figuring it out. It took me a long time. But that is exactly why these words are recorded in Scripture, so that we don't make fundamental errors in our thinking. As for the events leading up to the Exodus, they are referred to next in this second event in the Lord's act of grace towards the covenant people. Verse 5, also, I sent Moses and Aaron. This has to be considered a calling of grace. Moses had fled to Midian and would have spent the rest of his life there. Once he received his calling, he attempted to get the Lord to send someone else. 
This was especially based on these words from Exodus 4. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord responded with these words. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. However, Moses again asked the Lord to send someone else, kindling the Lord's anger against him. Because of this, the Lord appointed Aaron to be Moses' mouthpiece. From there, with these two as the Lord's instruments to work out his plan, it next says, verse 5 continues, And I plagued Egypt, and I struck Egypt. Without needing to go into any detail, the Lord sums up the ten plagues upon Egypt, combining them into one thought, that of striking them. This was, verse 5 continues, according to what I did among them. It is complicated to figure out what the subject is. According to which I did in his midst. The name Egypt is a feminine noun, so it can't be referring to that. Without anything else to go on except wrong commentaries, the first thing I did was call Sergio, and we talked about it. This is, what, eight or ten weeks ago. I don't even know if you remember that, but we talked about it. I would conclude that it is referring to Pharaoh, who is taken synonymously with Egypt. The same word is used in Exodus 3, where this is the case. Exodus 3, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in his midst, Bekir Bo. And after that, I will let you go. This makes sense. It has precedent, even if the nearest antecedent is not masculine, and it resolves the noticeable gender discord. In fact, because the Lord is speaking through Joshua about the Exodus account, and because that has been recorded and maintained among Israel, I would say it is the resolution to the matter. With that, the Lord next says, verse 5 finishes with, Afterward, I brought you out. And after brought out you, plural, all of you. The words are to all those gathered before the Lord, some of whom had actually dwelt in Egypt, but were young enough to escape the sentence upon those who were destined to die in the wilderness. As for the words themselves, they will be repeated and more fully explained in the next section. Despite that, they are complete enough to end the first section of the discourse to the people. With just five short verses, we have been able to review a few portions of hundreds, hundreds of years of Israel's history. The Lord is making a point by telling Israel these things. In each thought, there is the note that grace, grace has been given. Israel has no right to boast because it is the Lord who has accomplished these things. But more. The law that they have been given, though great and noble, is not a means to an end. It is merely a stepping stone to bring them to where they need to be. They should be able to see this from the things he has conveyed to them, but to this very day in human history, they cannot see it, nor can many in the church. A promise was given to Abraham and his seed. The introduction of the law cannot void that promise. Paul couldn't see this until the Lord personally intervened and then it changed his life. Since then, what occurred in his life and how that is relevant to our relationship with God has been recorded in the New Testament. We don't need a personal experience from the Lord to get it. We just need to read and think about what we have read. 
Hold fast to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He has done all of the work. We just need to accept that truth and believe. In our believing, he is pleased enough with us to seal us with his spirit, adopt us as his children, and call us his sons and daughters. Don't overcomplicate the simplicity of that. We may or may not be able to perceive all of the wonderful sounds and tastes and sights that are right there in the Bible, but we can at least get the basics right. God has made the gospel simple enough that anyone, any person can get it. So hear the word, believe in your heart, and confess with your mouth. In this, you will do well. Jim said it before we started today. When he opened us, he said, you know, a child can get it. It's something so simple. You tell a little child that got caught with her hand in the cookie jar, do you know you did wrong? Yes, daddy, I know I did wrong. They know. That's why they're hiding when they're taking the stuff out of the cookie jar. They don't do it right in front of mom and dad. They wait till they're out mowing the lawn or something. And then he walks in to get a drink of water and there she is. And she goes, oh, do you know you did wrong? Yeah. Do you know that there is a remedy for that? Jesus came and he died for the sin that you just committed. I get that, Daddy. Thank you, Jesus. I believe. It's that simple. And yet we tell these simple gospel to the smartest people in the world, and they work around it, and they try to obfuscate it and say that it's too easy. No, it's the hardest thing in the world, and you're proof of it, buddy. (laughs) Believe the simple gospel. Jesus did everything necessary for Israel, for Abraham, for every single person on this planet. Jesus is the answer. God did it in Christ for us. And all he asks you to do is believe. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. If you'll believe that simple gospel, you will be saved. Please don't muddy the simple gospel. Our closing verse comes from Acts 7, same as before, the text verse, but it's verse 15. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. But they came out exactly as promised, the fourth generation exactly as promised. Don't question the Word of God in the sense that you don't believe it. Question it all you want. I had to question the Word of God for every single bit of this. It took how many sermons? We've been doing this now for 10, 11 years. All of that had to be added together to get this information. You got to question it that way, but don't question the reliability of it. It is absolutely sure that this is the Word of God. I'm telling you what, it is absolutely sure. Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. Next week, Joshua 24, 6 through 15. To the Lord we shall applaud, this we shall do. It is entitled, For He is a Holy God. Part 2. Thank you, Jay. Very good. That'll be our 56th Joshua sermon. Man, we're getting right to the end of this book. What a great book it is. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I have a question today which would, for me, be complicated. But there are people in here that get this kind of thing. And because they do, I will not call this a complicated question. But I would not have gotten it if I asked it. Okay, pay attention. I'm going to ask it. Call it out. Which psalm begins with these words? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 31, Say it again. 14. 14. I'll give you an extra bonus if you can tell me the other psalm, because two psalms begin with that verse. 
Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there's no, I knew it. Didn't I say he'd get it? Burke gets numbers. He gets numbers. I would not have gotten that. We're sitting in Bible class and I'm like, where is that? I'm going, and then he's like, oh, that's over in Isaiah 22, verse 13. I'm like, thanks. Yeah, I, I figured he, he was a little slow on the updraft though. So yeah, good job. Oh, I didn't tell you what you get. You get the almost finished bottle of apple. No. There you go. I'm going to tell you what, I took a sip of this before we started today. It's getting tougher as it gets down. It's getting more diluted. I almost threw up, but it, it, it cleans you out. I can at least speak because of it. Oh, almost got there. I knew it would do that curve at the wall. It did it last time, but okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, what did you say? I do. I shake it and it makes it even more so. It's very, very wow. Okay. Um, we got a poem and we'll take the Lord's Supper. For he is a holy God, part one. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God to see what he would tell. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Avraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the Euphrates River in old times, and they served other gods. Such was the score. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river on a new track, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, the place of their distress. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt without a doubt. According to what I did among them, afterward I brought you out. Lord God, Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this treasure that you have given us, your word, that is so filled with so many details, so many difficult and complicated things that we can spend our lives searching it out. And yet the overall message is so simple that even a child can get it. Man has fallen. Man needs grace. Man receives grace through Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you that that is offered to us. The Redeemer promised all the way back in Genesis 3 is the Savior who came and died on a tree. Thank you that Jesus came and did that for us. And he rose again so that we can have everlasting life and total assurance for all eternity. Thank you. Amen.